Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. It's time to get your summer reading list together, and coming up, we'll hear from author and CNN producer Myra Cuevas about her young adult fiction offering, Salty, Bitter, Sweet. And later this hour, a new immersive experience is about to make its home in Atlanta, and it promises to transport us to the world's most extraordinary places. But first, the darkly comedic TV drama Why Women Kill is currently slaying audiences as it enters the midway point of its second season. City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy has been following the anthology series, and she recently chatted with Atlanta native Jordan Christie, the actor who betrays Detective Vern Loomis. <laughs> Season two of Why Women Kill is set in 1949 and follows several storylines down dark, twisty paths that eventually intertwine. In the Paramount Plus TV show, we meet private detective Vern Loomis and watch as he's hired by a married woman to investigate not her husband, but her lover. Atlanta native Jordane Christie plays Detective Vern Loomis, and he joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Mm, Thank you. Thank you for having me, Shelley. Well, so the title Why Women Kill makes me think about true crime shows like Dateline, Secrets Uncovered, or Snapped, which is one of my favorites. It profiles women who kill their husbands or lovers. But this is not true crime. Do you have any thoughts about why we're interested in this kind of story anyway? Well, it's a fun take on the matter. But it's also period. So the story takes place in 1949. So it's really a journey of an experience, truly. Mark Cherry, who created Desperate Housewives, created this show. So it has kind of that same tone. It's a fun, slightly soapy um, drama, uh, dramedy, really. Uh, So it has both notes of comedy and drama in, in it. And it's just some just really rich characters that are fun and relatable a little over the top sometimes but it's it's escapism it's it's entertainment and it's a it's a good watch for sure yeah people love to hear this kind of story like watching someone get to a point that most of us can't imagine that we're ever going to get to and we even get to see one of the main characters a waitress named Dee serving your character Vern in a diner and she mentions a magazine that she's reading called Masters of Crime you know that paper you're pretending to read is two days old so it is. Well, you got something new? Just finish this. Give it a try. Masters of Crime. Huh. You read this stuff? Oh, I love a good murder. The bloodier the better. See, violence doesn't bother me. Is that so? Yeah. Keep that in mind when you tip me. It's also, uh, in ways, a love letter to a lot of um, classic films from that golden era of Hollywood in the 40s. Um, A lot of our characters are inspired by tropes and by characters previously made during some of those times. Humphrey Bogart and The Big Sleep. And and there's a lot of also allusions to the classic film Sunset Boulevard. And it's it's really well thought out. And it is good storytelling. Yeah, a little soapy, but 
played very well um, <laughs> by some very strong actors and actresses, both from the lead and supporting cast. We have a lot of um, Broadway vets on, on our cast as well. So it's, it's cool. It's a great ensemble piece. Yes, it definitely is. The music in the show gives it, gives it kind of a film noir feel. Were you thinking of that kind of thing? And what else do you think you used to get into that 1949 mindset? Yeah, uh, we, uh, you said it. Certainly the music of the time. I listened to, uh, became an even deeper lover of Coltrane, which Coltrane was actually, began around that time in a few years. Uh, it was prominent uh, more in like later 50s. But I really um, enjoyed um, using that music uh, as well as some other to, to kind of get into the time frame. But also watching a lot of classic films. I mean, the, it was a fun film study for me, for sure, and to, and to see what I can pull pull from and, um, and inform this character. Yeah. The show is full of plot twists and turns. I literally gasped during episode two. So do you, as an actor, have any idea of where the story is going, or are you just on this ride with us? During the, the production of it, I was pretty much on the, the ride the way you guys are now because we got like the next script while we were shooting the previous script. But I had no idea really what the fate of our characters would be, where we were going by the end of the episode. I did hear that some actors who primed the producers and, and got a little bit of info out of them, but they, they would prefer you not to. And I was kind of just like, all right, well, let me just go with the ride and see how this plays out. And I had fun with that. Yeah, it's very fun. And the show is called Why Women Kill, but so far, and I've only seen the first three episodes, but no women have done any killing. Almost, but not quite. So is there is there something to that? Do I just need to wait and see? I'm very impatient. Yo, yeah, hang in there. <laughs> hang in there. Definitely gets messy. Ooh. I mean, in the second episode, we did see Miss Yost uh, die. That was kind of an accidental killing. That is where I gasped. I was, I was floored. Yeah. I had no idea. She kind of laid her own bed in the way, though, right? She was asking yes. for it, but... And for the unfamiliar, Mrs. Yost is the nosy neighbor. <laughs> Alma kind of did assist that death unknowingly. Well, that is true. Unknowingly. That is true. I didn't think of that. <laughs> but, uh, but we see there's some history there with her husband as well. You know, a dark history there before. I'm not sure if you caught that. You mean the killing part, right? His dark history? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I know, mean, that's I all anybody yeah. cares about, right? Is the killing. Well, right? the killing is the thing we care about. We don't want to give away all the spoilers. But yeah, Alma, who is the housewife, uh, discovers that her husband has been doing some killing. <laughs> um, your character is particularly sweet to Dee, the waitress who also happens to be Alma's daughter. What are you doing? You okay? Funny enough... Yeah. I've put up with so much. My whole life. Other girls got toast. I got crumbs. I wanted more, but mom made me think that girls who aren't pretty should be thankful for whatever we can get. And I believed her. Then tonight, I finally said no. I deserve more. Do you think it's important to portray that kind of kindness to women who feel a certain way about themselves? I mean, is this was this the writer making some kind of a point? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I think the the beginning of what's going on between D and I is um, is he sees her spirit. They are attracted to each other in ways that are, uh, I guess, beyond the obvious. So, yeah, I mean, I think you you're beginning to see something that is uh, rich and just kind of from a place of, of purity. I mean, Vern sees a lot of nasty stuff in his, in his line of work, a lot of lying and a lot of cheating and, and just people doing the worst that they can do. Right. And yeah, he's kind of just, I think, attracted to her purity and her honesty. She seems just very honest She's in, and with a great sense of humor too. Yeah, and a little a little bit of a tough cookie, too. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes. So I want to shift to some of your other work. Uh, during the pandemic, you also filmed a short movie called We Can't Breathe. Can you tell me about that film? Yeah, We Can't Breathe was a short film that I collaborated with with a young 
director named Clarence Williams, he reached out to me. It was a, a passion piece that he wrote that was also just um, a great time to express what a lot of us were feeling shortly after the uh, George Floyd killing and protest. It was one that we made in quarantine, which was me and, and a young lady, where it was based upon a couple, a young couple, arguing essentially kind of different points. She was biracial and her father was a, a white police officer and kind of bumping heads and fighting their, their points, really. It was a good time to express all of ourselves in the ways we, we needed to. Our Why Women Kill We shot entirely during the pandemic as well. Yeah, we started production in October and we finished in April. Yeah, it presents its challenges, that's for sure. But all in all, I mean, it was I was so grateful to have a job, to have work during the pandemic. But yeah, it definitely presented its obstacles for sure. And Jordan, you're from Atlanta, right? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Sandy Springs, Fulton County. I went to Riverwood International Charter School, went up to New York for college. But yeah, Atlanta Atlanta is, is, is a huge part of my story, and I, I love Atlanta. This is meaningful to me, for sure. And it must have been interesting when you were cast in Donald Glover's show on FX called Atlanta, in Atlanta, being from Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did an episode on the second season, and uh, I, I was super excited to work on that show. I'm a big fan of that show. And yes, titled Atlanta. Just just the, the creativity involved with that show. It was, it was definitely a dream, and it was a super fun, super fun episode. We also shot The, the Haunting of Hill House um, in Atlanta, too. A lot of my favorite jobs happened in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about your parents really quickly. They're Jamaican, correct? Yes. What do they feel about this? Is this, it's not exactly the road they saw for you, right? <laughs> it was not. It definitely, it definitely wasn't. I had a lot of pressure to go into medicine. My parents are actually both in medicine. They're Jamaican immigrants. Both of them moved here when they were like late teens. And so, you know, just different priorities. Also, generationally, it just seems uh, a bohemian and crazy to pursue a, any career in the arts. Early on, it was a lot of resistance, but, um, but you know, they've, they've come around. Um, but to be honest, I think that resistance kind of made me a little bit more focused and driven to like, well, well I'm going to make this work, you know? <laughs> so, so they're very loving and they're supportive now for sure. You know, they're, they're very proud of me. But, you know, I know it's based in, it's, that was really based in a fear and a fear of the unknown. What's coming up next for you? Well, there are a lot of things that my team were looking over and were in the mix for, but nothing officially yet. A great dream is I heard that they're looking for a, for a black Superman. And I'm like, oh, can we uh, can we see about that? Ooh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. But, yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that we're being seen for. And it, it's, it's exciting. And I'm, I'm just I'm really excited right now for for the world to see this show as well. I mean, it's it's uh, I've worked on quite a few productions in Atlanta as well. But this is my first full season um, arc, you know, as a regular character. So I'm really ex excited for the exposure that it's bringing. It's a great show. Thank you so much. Well, yeah, it's such a pleasure, Shelley. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Actor Jordan Christie talking to City Lights engineering contributor Shelley Canavy about season two of Why Women Kill. The series is currently available for streaming on Paramount Plus TV, and you can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Salty, bitter, sweet. It's a young adult novel by CNN producer and author Myra Cuevas. The book tells the story of Isabella, a Cuban-American teenage girl whose passion for cooking takes her all the way to France. 
The book is billed as part coming-of-age story and part romantic comedy. And last March, Cuevas visited with City Lights executive producer and host, Lois Reitzes. And here, she explains what attracted her to write for young adult readers. During that point in my own life, I feel like books saved me. My parents were going through a very difficult divorce. My grandparents had died just like in the book. Some of those are real-life experiences that I used to write all this emotion that main character Isa is going through. I used stories as an escape. I used stories to pull me away from some of the difficulties I was experiencing. This was when you were the age of your young adult. My readers, fiction yes. audience. I was very lucky growing up that I had this long list of Latin American authors in which I could see myself in the characters and I could see myself in the authors. It was very important for me to grow up being seen in the stories that I was reading. I wanted to give that same gift to someone else. In which author's works did you see yourself? Two big-name Latin American authors come to mind, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I was reading A Hundred Years of Solitude by the time I was 12. And that book completely changed my life. It's just an amazing, genius just work of art. And Isabel Allende, her masterpiece novel, La Casa de los Espíritus, it's a book that I would go to sleep with that book tucked under my pillow. Their words sustain me through very difficult times in my life of a lot of depression and anxiety because of what was going on at home. You have very good taste in fiction. You dedicate the book to your grandmothers who taught you that love arrives through the kitchen. Please tell us more. Yes, so my abuela's cooking was very nourishing at a difficult time in my life when I was growing up during my teen years. I learned from them that food is love, that these women were giving of themselves through the meals that they were preparing. They would put these amazing dishes in front of me and I would feel so special because somebody had gone and prepared this meal with so much love and care, and I felt loved and seen. One of the most amazing moments in my publishing career and in the journey of of bringing this book about was taking the book to my abuela's home in Puerto Rico and sitting with her and showing her the dedication and telling her how much her love meant in my life. Oh. Salty, Bitter, Sweet is about a 17-year-old girl, Isabella, who is serious about cooking. Not your general definition of serious. She doesn't want to just become a chef. She wants to be a Michelin-starred chef and receive the highest culinary award of the French government. Would you describe Isabella's background? When the book begins, Isabella's struggling. Her Cuban grandmother is her culinary muse, and she has just passed away. She's dealing with that death and all the grief that has brought it about. And then her parents have gotten a divorce. Isabella, as a way to cope, she turns to the only thing that brings her happiness and absolute joy, which is cooking. So she throws herself into the kitchen. And being a part of this program in this world-renowned kitchen where the chef is trying to find his new apprentice, Isabella takes all of her feelings of loss and grief, and she uses them to fuel the competition. Most of the book is set in Lyon, France, a real-life gastronomical capital of the world. How much of what you describe is real? Is there such a restaurant as La Table de Lyon? In building this world, I did a lot of research. One of the books that inspired the scenes in the book was uh, 32 Yokes by Veronica Chambers and uh, Eric Rippert. And I also connected with one of Atlanta's top pastry chefs. She's the pastry chef of Bacchanalia, Chef Carla Tomasco, who is just absolutely amazing. 
She's an immigrant from Ecuador. Uh, she's a woman that has had success in this male-dominated space. She told me her experience about succeeding in, in the, this kitchen environment, and she invited me to come to the kitchen at Bacchanalia and spend some time with them and, and take notes and, and learn what it's like to work in one of these high-end dining kitchens. It was an absolute amazing experience. So my goal was to try to make the world in the book as authentic as possible and as realistic as possible. Is there a program like the competition which Isabella enters for one teenage student to win an apprenticeship with a renowned chef? Not that I know of, but there should be, because <laughs> if you read the book, it's an awesome program. <laughs> okay, you, you talk about Bacchanalia and that magnificent pastry chef, and I know the chef and co-owner and Cotrano seemed like a lovely person. The chefs in this book mm. are not. They are cruel. Mm -hmm. Their behavior is downright abusive mm -hmm. toward their underlings mm -hmm. as well as the students. How pervasive is that in the restaurant world? So believe it or not, these characters were actually based on some real people and the behavior of some real people. The French culinary system can be quite brutal. It's almost like being in the military. Well, yeah, and yes. the fact that the head is called a chef, a yes. chief, that fits. <laughs> so the behavior, obviously, we needed a few villains in the book, right, to create a little bit of tension um, and put some obstacles on Isa's path. But it's not that far from the truth. In many of these high-end dining restaurants, this world is known for a lot of pressure on its stars. And unfortunately, when I was doing the research, I had to read through several stories of, of suicide and, and depression and anxiety. It was really sad because several people had put their entire life self-worth and value on attaining these stars, Michelin stars, and, and what people thought of their food and what they thought of their restaurant. And I think they lost sight that they're being loved. Chef Gratar mm -hmm. is the chef who's program Isabella enters. Is he based on Paul Bocuse? I'd say I used a few big name chefs. So he's a composite? He is a composite of several stories that I read in memoirs of well-known chefs, of stories that are very much real. I think there's a scene where he berates one of the cooks because he doesn't do a steak properly for his dog. That was actually inspired by a real-life event. Isabella is very proud of her feminist take on the world. Yes, she is. Would you comment on how you address aspects of gender inequality in the workplace in this book? For me, it was very important to tell girls that they can succeed on their own terms. Sometimes, as women, we're trying to succeed in male-dominated spaces. We lose sight of who we are and what we want and who we want to be. We let ourselves be defined by others' measures of success, especially men's measure of success. And I want girls to know that you can define what success means to you based on what you want, what makes you happy, especially in, in these spaces where men are calling the shots. Mm -hmm. And we see an example of it in two other students in the program. Would you yes. describe Isabella's friendship with the other girls? With Lucia and Pippa. Why was that unusual? There's various factors here at play. When the book starts, Isabella hasn't found her tribe. She hasn't found girls that are as driven as her and are as goal-oriented as her. So she feels a little bit isolated. And then when she comes into this test kitchen, the competition kitchen, she immediately meets Lucia and Pippa, who are the other two girls who are part of the program. There's only the three of them. 
So they immediately bond, even though they are competitors, they're competing against each other. But things get complicated, as they do in, in real life. The competition heats up, and the, all of a sudden, this becomes a take-no-prisoners approach. The friendships become a little bit tarnished. But Isa has to learn, by the end of the book, that she has to build a community of women around her to support her. And she has to support other women in order for herself to succeed. This idea that we are independent and we should be these wonder women, all independent, all knowing, is is absolutely false. We are interdependent beings. We need a community of other women around us supporting us, encouraging us, and we need to do the same for others. So it's very important that we see these friendships in this book as they're, they're supporting each other's dreams. Throughout much of the story, Isabella is trying to come to terms with her mm-hmm. parents' divorce. Sadly, many young adult readers have faced this situation. Mm-hmm. How does the issue of her parents' divorce influence Isabella's choices as well as her behavior? Isabella's feelings about her parents' divorce, I actually wrote these from my own experience. I lived through this. My parents had a very difficult divorce when I was a teenager. It it changes who you are forever. There's feelings of loss. There's self-doubt. You get lost in what's going on with your parents. And there's a lot of questions. Isabella, throughout the book, she wants to know the truth. She wants to know what happened. And she struggles to forgive. Um, in this case, it was her dad who had an infidelity. She struggles to forgive him and to accept that what has happened. And I want readers to go on this journey with her and understand by the end, it, it's okay if we don't have all the answers. Our parents are who they are, and, and we can love them even if they have made mistakes. And she does. Her father has found a new life. He's living in France as a cherry farmer (laughs) after having been a high-powered finance executive. And his younger wife is pregnant with their first child. Tell us about some of the other characters in this story uh, with the backdrop of this beautiful farmhouse. So, of course, we have the love interest, uh, the hot Spaniard, (laughs) Diego. Gotta have a love interest (laughs) for a teenage story. He is hot from what you described. (laughs) He rides a motorcycle. He's got a bulldog named Beluga. I love Beluga. (laughs) So, Diego has a very important function in in this world, in, in Salty Bittersweet, And he basically comes in to help Issa question the choices she has made so far. Diego was a swimmer who was on track to go to the Olympics. And at some point, he realizes this is not what I want. This is not making me happy. And then he has to pull back. He has to make a decision for himself, whether to drop all these things that he has been working so hard for. So when he arrives at the story, Isa's not at that point yet. She's not at the point where she's questioning some of her life choices that are obviously not making her happy. Diego comes in to help her see herself. And again, it plays to that notion of interdependence. We can still find ways to be ourselves, but within the context of of relationship. What about some of the other characters? Tell us about the Lala. So Lala, obviously, she's Issa's grandmother, her muse. She is inspired by my own grandmothers who love me and care for me through my youth and my teen years and even to this day. Basically, Lala is a source of pure love. She's a source of wisdom. She is there to tell Issa it's going to be okay. And I feel like at many points in our life, we need somebody to tell us it's going to be okay. But very specifically, Lala expressed herself through food. Yes. Through her cooking and in her kitchen, though she was trained as a nurse, Mm -hmm. 
this was how she expressed herself ultimately, and this seems to be why Isabella takes cooking so seriously. What are some of Lala's sayings that have a profound impact on Isabella, especially toward the end? One is, El amor entra por la cocina. Love arrives through the kitchen, which is one of my favorites. I grew up through that saying. It basically means that, you know, you give of yourself through your food. You put all of your love into whatever it is you're making, and you make that a gift to others. Through whatever meal you're making, others are going to find connection. Others are going to come to the table and come together. Another one of Lala saying, which was very instrumental, was... Frente al amor y a la muerte, no sirve de nada ser fuerte. Against love and death, there's no point in being strong. Love and death are, are two experiences that are, are universal. They're going to happen whether we like it or not. They're going to happen to us at some point in our life. So she basically tells her, open your heart. Let this, these things come in. Let them change you. And you'll discover another new person at the other end of it. There are some elaborate dishes prepared and meals set. How much do you cook, Myra? I was wondering as I'm reading and getting very hungry with much of this book and its descriptions of food. My husband uh, and my friends will tell you that I cook a lot. I love cooking. I I find it very meditative, and it is a way in which I love to give of myself to others. I love it so much that we started a a dinner club in our neighborhood, and I'm I'm from Norcross, so some of our neighbors have gotten together, and we have this dinner club when we meet every couple of months, and everybody's responsible for bringing a dish. I actually tested some of the dishes that are in the book during the dinner club, and everybody was just so excited. Oh, I'll bet. (laughs) You make Isabella's background part Cuban, and her Lala is Cuban. You are of Puerto Rican background. Yes. Why did you make Isabella Cuban? Because one of the lessons that Isa had to learn from Lala is that even when we lose everything and there is no turning back, we can find a path forward. And... For me, it was important that when Lala left Cuba, she left forever. She couldn't go back. So everything that she knew, her friends, her family, everything got left behind, and she had to start a completely new life. If she would have been Puerto Rican, the the door would have always been open for her to go back home and revisit the life that she had. Isabella needs to learn that even when the life that we knew is completely gone, If we have hope, if we have love and compassion in our heart, there's always a path forward. But did you have to do research into Cuban culture and Cuban cuisine? Yes, I did. (laughs) Because it's not the same as Puerto Rican. No, it is not. It's very close, but it's not. But I am very grateful that I have um, a lot of Cuban friends that— I could go to. I, I actually read a lot of blogs. I read books about, you know, uh, Cuban traditions and Cuban food. I had a, a Cuban expert, let's say, read the book and make sure that everything was authentic, that Lala was authentic, that all the traditions were spot on, that the food was things that she knew from her childhood. I'm, I'm really, really, really happy that I, I was able to bring Lala in such a beautiful way uh, to the forefront of the story. Mm. And with the Cuban Revolution and Lala having to flee, you also address the importance of being in touch with our immigrant roots. Yes. Was that also part of your goal in writing this story? Obviously, I'm I'm writing from a Latina point of view. I grew up and I was raised in Puerto Rico. I've been living in Atlanta for more than 16 years now, but I am Puerto Rican. I am Latina. And it is important for me to stay very connected to my heritage, stay very connected to my traditions. 
I go back home uh, one, two, three times a year to visit my family who still lives in the island. It's incredibly important to me that I don't lose that connection. How would you describe Isabella and how her identity is formed by these diverse backgrounds? Isabella is a 17-year-old, I kind of joke, half Cuban, half American, half French. So she feels like she's a, all of these um, cultures and traditions are a part of her, but she feels like she doesn't fully belong to any of them. And, and I could identify with that sometimes. It's like we feel we're, we're not Latina enough, we're not American enough, we're not Puerto Rican enough. It's a real struggle for a lot of people that, that move into, into the mainland United States with other cultural backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So Issa's struggling with her own sense of self-identity, and she's also struggling with this view that she's very goal-oriented. She's very driven. And in our society, when girls are ambitious, when they're driven, when they're goal-oriented, they're not seen as likable. I say we because I fall into that category. We are constantly being told, tone it down. You know, don't want so much. Don't be such an overachiever. And Isa needs to understand that the, these qualities make her who she is, and they're going to help her achieve her dreams, and they're going to help her bring other girls with her. This is fittingly a coming-of-age story. How has her experience in Lyon transformed Isabella? So when the book starts, Isabella is fiercely independent. She thinks that she's going to achieve her goals on her own, that she needs to get out there and work hard and do her work independent of what everybody else is doing. And towards the end of the book, she discovers that she is part of a loving community and she needs to give of herself to this community in order to receive that love and receive that nourishment that she needs. Towards the end of the book, she also learns to accept her grief, to accept her loss as part of her journey of who she is, and that these things are, in the end, just going to make her stronger. CNN producer and author Myra Cuevas talking to City Lights executive producer and host Lois Reitzes. You can learn more about her young adult fiction offering, Salty, Bitter, Sweet, on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Imagine you're strolling along the Atlanta Beltline's East Side Trail. Scooters are whizzing by, dogs are being walked, cyclists are passing on your left. Wanting a break from your walk, you pop into a nearby building and then within minutes, you've left Atlanta and now you're on an African savanna or stranger still, you're not even on earth anymore. Instead, you're in outer space. Sounds like science fiction, right? In reality, it's closer to a combination of science and art. And it's the premise of Atlanta's newest experience-based attraction, Illuminarium. Illuminarium CEO is Alan Greenberg, and their EVP of Technology and Content is Brian Allen, and they both join us now via Zoom. Alan and Brian, welcome to City Lights. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks for having us today. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, we're very happy to have you with us. Alan, your history is fascinating. Among other things, you've been the publisher of Esquire magazine. You started Greenberg News Network, and I believe you also started Webcast, which later became WebMD, right? Yes, uh, all the above. Guilty as charged. <laughs> That's a lot of variety. What made you decide to go into the immersive experience world? Well, I think it's no secret that there are some amazing experiences that have opened all over the world. Uh, things like uh, Team Lab in Tokyo and Atelier Luminaire in Paris and Meow Wolf in Santa Fe. And we saw these trends in what is um, some people call the experience economy. 
and uh, and thought we could do something really special. I was fortunate enough to be introduced to people like Brian, um, who heads our technology, our partners, Radical Media, and the Rockwell Group. And between us all, we put together this concept uh, over about a three-year period. So the experience is going to be located on the Atlanta Beltline. Was there anywhere else in Atlanta that you were looking at, or was it always Beltline or bust? You know, we um, we saw the location on the Beltline, and it just felt perfect. We loved the energy. You know, when you're on the Beltline, you're kind of on an adventure, and we just loved that vibe. So when we saw it, we went, uh, we're going to put the world's first luminarium here. We actually were looking in New York City for a long time to find the right spot, but when we saw this one, we said, let's start here. That's just great. You know, this is truly the intersection of art and technology. Brian, can you give us a little background on how the tech used in Illuminarium actually works? What I like to say is we are creating and have created a new media format. And what I mean by that is we have a very large and beautiful canvas for audio, video, interaction, true multi-sensory experience. And the advent of multiple technologies, including native 4K laser projection, audio tech capabilities, interactive capabilities powered by LiDAR, scent capabilities, allowed me and the team to really layer technologies together to be more of a supporting character for the content that gets displayed um, in within our Illuminarium spaces. And it's really allowed us to create quite a unique tool set for audio, visual, interactive designers to come in and really design something that no one's ever seen before. To put it in lay terms, uh, when you walk into an Illuminarium and you come to our safari experience, you're going to see it like reality. You're going to hear it in an extraordinary way. You're going to feel it uh, because of the haptic systems in our floor that give you kind of a, a, a vibration, a rumble effect in your body. You're going to smell it through our sense systems, and you're actually going to affect it through the uh, LIDAR interactive system. So when you're walking down a dirt path on our floors, you'll actually pick up dust as you walk. Or in our second spectacle, which is called Spacewalk, when you walk on the surface of the moon, you'll actually leave footprints on the surface of the moon as you walk on it. Wow. All right. As far as some of the interactive elements go, I have a hard time wrapping my head around how that happens. But you're saying that my physical actions will have an effect on what I see. So Brian, you can talk to the how the LIDAR system actually works. It's pretty amazing. You walk up to a tree and a thousand birds fly away. You can um, move your hand and you can affect things uh, through gestures and, and the like. That's correct. So we use a 3D LIDAR-based sensing system, which allows us to tell how people move throughout our spaces, but also where you are at any given point uh, within the Illuminarium space during the experience. So it allows us to reference that position and tie that in with the uh, content itself. So whether that may be leaving a footprint or interacting with a puddle, all the way to future spectacles where we're we're actually thinking about group interaction and what happens when you come up to an area of the wall by yourself versus with your family. Um, how is that interaction different? And so really using this tool set that we've created to further the knowledge about uh, group interaction and really immersive interaction, because I think it's a space that's highly untapped. At the end of the day, um... It's just fun. You're going to feel like you really are on the savanna in Africa. Um, and, um, and that's really what we do. We democratize extraordinary experiences like a safari, something that people dream about doing. It's kind of a bucket list opportunity for people, and we make it reality for them. I get that. And I like that you're speaking about making experiences like this available to everyone and not just people who may have $20,000 to lay down on a safari, but you're going a little further than equalizing experiences because some of the things that you're offering aren't really available to anyone, like the spacewalk experience that's coming up. 
Yeah, so spacewalk is going to be uh, really it's going to be something extraordinary. You will um, you will walk on the surface of the moon, and as I said, you will leave footprints and kick up moon dust as you do that. You'll then be off to Mars to do the same thing there. You'll be surrounded uh, by the rings of Saturn, by the storms of Jupiter. You'll go into the Kuiper Belt out in the uh, the far reaches of space, and you will really feel like you're having an experience that really nobody. Uh, except for the maybe dozen people who actually have walked on the moon, you'll have that kind of experience. Incredibly cool. Can you speak a little to how the stories are put together? I know that people can walk into a room at various times, and there's always going to be content playing. So how do you account for people joining the story at different times? So our content partner is Radical Media. And if you saw Hamilton's Dream on Disney+, Plus, uh, you saw Radical Media at work. They're Academy Award winning, Emmy Award winning, a Grammy Award winning production company. And we film, for example, our safari spectacle, which we called Wild. We film that using a very unique camera array that uh, films at a 240 degree field of view. And you see at a 220. So we're actually filming at a wider field of view than most people would ever see. So that's what we do, um, you know, in, in terms of the content production. We sent film crews to Africa for six months, and then they came back with amazing cinema. And then we put that together in really unique ways. I think what really excites me is the opportunity that lies ahead for creators. Um, we've built this incredible canvas with an incredible tool set to back it up, but it is nothing without content. And I'm really excited to see and kind of open the format to see what people do with it and allow creators to come into our R&D lab space and try the format, try new things out because I think we're scratching the surface of what we can actually do with this. So what I'm visualizing, the more you talk about this, is the experience that someone would normally get from putting on a VR headset, but turning it into a community experience. Does that sound right? You're 100% correct. So Illuminarium is in many ways VR without the glasses or without the headset. And, uh, And what that allows you to do is to have a a shared experience, a communal experience, to go to Africa with somebody as you typically would, and to share those wow moments together, those head-turning moments of life. So we think there's never been a better time for people to come back together in a communal experience that you just can't do with VR. That is true. Brian, another technical question for you. I've seen pictures that make it seem like there's areas in the experience to sit or recline, but those areas are also visually incorporated into the experience. For example, I might be sitting on a chair, but instead it looks like I'm sitting on a pile of dirt in the savanna. Is that accurate? <laughs> yes, it's it's accurate. So we've designed um, what I'll call sort of movable scenic elements that uh, receive projection. So we can use those. And again, they're canvases. They're, they, they become a part of the screen, if you will. And so they receive projection just like any other canvas uh, because we are full, fully projection mapped. And so we can turn those elements into you know, rock formations. We can turn them into coral reefs. We can turn them into uh, Mars, uh, rocks as well, you know, anything that we might, uh, go with the theme or go with the content that we're playing. Um, but they also serve as nice seats. Aside from the actual Illuminarium experience, your space has a couple of other forever elements, including a bar and cafe. And it is the bar that really intrigues me because I've heard it also incorporates visual elements like the Illuminarium does. So, I could be sitting at the bar sipping a cocktail and maybe think that I'm underwater on a coral reef. You're going to feel like it. Uh, So you walk off the belt line uh, and you're having a drink at the bottom of the ocean. You come back a couple of weeks later and uh, you may be in the Himalayas or in an Asian uh, night market. And I think we're actually going to open the bar experience with what we call Shibuya night market. Uh, Shibuya is an area of Tokyo. It's, I think, the busiest intersection in the world. And uh, and you're going to feel like you're there. 
are there audio elements that'll be going on too? I'm just wondering, like picturing myself in this bar having a cocktail, will I at all be engaging with the person sitting next to me? Or am I just going to be slack jawed looking around and hearing everything? I think it'll be a little bit of both. Um, you're going to be wowed when you walk in for sure. Um, and uh, it'll be kind of like you are, uh, like, like I said earlier, like you are at the bottom of the ocean. You're surrounded by water, surrounded by sea creatures. Uh, there's wonderful music that's playing in our, in our sound system, which is quite unique. Uh, it it's, um, comes from Berlin, and it's uh, what is called 3D beamforming sound. So actually, if you're 10 feet apart from someone else, you might hear something a little bit different. Uh, than uh, than the person that you're with. It's really unique. Pretty neat. And Atlanta's just the first, right? You're going to be opening other locations? We are. So Atlanta will be the world's first luminarium. Uh, We're under construction right now in Las Vegas, and we'll open there at the end of the year. We've uh, signed our lease in Miami um, in the Wynwood Arts District there. Uh, It will open in 2022 in Miami. And we just signed a letter of intent on a pretty cool location in Chicago as well. And working hard on Mexico City and in a lot of other places. That's just great. You mentioned uh, earlier that one of your inspirations for interactive art was one of my personal favorite places in the world, Meow Wolf in Santa Fe. And I know that they have a new location in Las Vegas as well. Any chance you're moving into the same area that they're in? You've nailed it. Yes, we're moving to Area 15, literally uh, 50 feet or so from Meow Wolf. So uh, they will be our neighbors and at what is called Area 15, a new um, experiential entertainment development in Las Vegas. We're really proud to be there. I've got a, uh, a Zoom uh, this week actually with the CEO of Meow Wolf to talk about ways we can partner together. That's just great. They are a wonderful organization and it sounds like you'll be a really good fit as neighbors in Las Vegas. Well, gentlemen, it has been fascinating. I appreciate you both taking the time to share a bit about how a luminarium works and what Atlanta can expect. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. We're really proud to be bringing the world's first luminarium to Atlanta. Illuminarium CEO Alan Greenberg and their EVP of Technology and Content, Brian Allen. Illuminarium opens on July 1st, and you can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. You can catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Musician and Kimono My House co-founder Andy Gish shares the story behind the Atlanta-based virtual venue and their plans for a future that includes a return to performing live and in person. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Our producer is Summer Evans and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes. Follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or follow Lois on Twitter at Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.